the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. You're listening to Good Heavens, a podcast about how the heavens declare the glory of God. And lift off. Decollage, lift off from a tropical rainforest to the edge of time itself. James Webb begins a voyage back to the birth of the universe. Separation Webb Space Telescope. Go Webb! We do have confirmation of observatory separation. The James Webb Space Telescope, amidst applause here in the Mission Control Center, now taking its first steps in pursuit of cosmological discovery. The audio you just heard is from NASA's live broadcast on Christmas Day of 2021 of the launch and subsequent Earth orbit deployment of the long-anticipated and very expensive new James Webb Space Telescope. Since its operations began in the summer of 2022 at a point in space nearly a million miles from Earth, words do not seem adequate enough to describe the images and significance of just what the telescope has uncovered. The discoveries of these cosmological treasures that have been sealed off in the deepest recesses of the universe are perhaps akin to the monumental discovery by archaeologist Howard Carter in November of 1922 of the tomb of an obscure 18th dynasty boy king we now know as Tutankhamun. After many years of fruitless toil under the hot and unrelenting sun of the Egyptian desert and the outbreak of World War I, Carter and his team, financed by the wealthy Lord Carnarvon, finally made the discovery of a lifetime. Retired archivist curator of Carter's artifacts, Jeremy Malik noted, Carter, quote, was obviously a man of few words. He was very prosaic, very down to earth, but when you read Carter's description of when they first opened the tomb, he suddenly becomes a poet, end quote. Carter was the first to enter the tomb with nothing more than a single candle. In his journal, Carter later recounted the thrill of his initial experience. Quote, It was some time before one could see. The hot air escaping caused the candle to flicker. But as soon as one's eyes became accustomed to the glimmer of light, the interior of the chamber gradually loomed before one with its strange and wonderful medley of extraordinary and beautiful objects heaped upon one another." End quote. When Lord Carnarvon and others could no longer stand Carter's prolonged silence from within the tomb, they called out to Carter and asked if he could see anything. 
The generally accepted response Carter is believed to have uttered was, yes, wonderful things. And indeed, that may all be an apt description of what the team of astronomers who first laid eyes on Webb's newly discovered treasures may have likewise experienced. Ivo Labie and Erica Nelson are astronomers whose team recently discovered enormous galaxies in the earliest regions of the universe, where they just should not be. As Labie said in an article on astronomy.com, quote, All of Erica's galaxies look like saucers, except one. I stare at the little red dot on the screen. That is no UFO. And then it hits me. This is something very different. Much more important. I run the analysis software on the little pinprick, and it spits out two numbers. Distance 13.1 billion light years, mass 100 billion stars, and I nearly spit out my coffee. We just discovered the impossible. Impossibly early, impossibly massive galaxies. At this distance, the light took 13 billion years to reach us. So we are seeing galaxies at a time when the universe was only 700 million years old. Barely 5% of its current age of 13.8 billion years. If this is true, this galaxy has formed as many stars as our present-day Milky Way in record time. And where there is one, there are more. One day later, I had found six. End quote. This discovery, according to the current understanding of how stars and galaxies form, is impossible. Quote, These little red dots have too many stars too early. Stars form out of hydrogen gas, and fundamental cosmological Big Bang theory makes hard predictions on how much gas is available to form stars. To produce these galaxies so quickly, you almost need all the gas in the universe to turn into stars at near 100% efficiency. And that is very hard, which is the scientific term for impossible. The discovery could transform our understanding of how the earliest galaxies in the universe formed. The implication is that there is a different channel, a fast track, that produces monster galaxies very quickly, very efficiently, a fast track for the top 1%. In a way, each of these candidates can be considered a black swan. The confirmation of even one would rule out our current all-swans-are-white model of galaxy formation, in which all early galaxies grow slowly and gradually, end quote. Labie's observations and general astonishment bring to mind a scene from Shakespeare's Hamlet. As Barnardo says to Horatio about seeing Hamlet's father's ghost upon the ramparts of the Denmark citadel, quote, How now, Horatio? You tremble and look pale. Is not this something more than fantasy? What think you want? To which Horatio replies, Before my God, I might not disbelieve without sensible and true avouch of mine own eyes. This bodes some strange eruption to our state. 
Later in Act 1, Scene 5, Horatio and Hamlet are discussing the phantom appearance. Horatio exclaims, O day and night, but this is wondrous strange. To which Hamlet enjoins, And therefore give it welcome. There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. Perhaps Shakespeare had something of a cosmological portent in mind when he penned the words in Hamlet's mouth, quote, The time is out of joint. End quote. For cosmology and astronomy, these royal galactic kings emanating from the deepest recesses of the universe's tomb have come forth, alive and full of light, walking upon the ramparts of modern science, striking us with awe, wonder, and the very real possibility that everything we thought we knew about the universe is about to change completely. So come and see on this episode of Good Heavens. Well, good heavens, Wayne, it is yet another episode of Good Heavens. Good heavens, we're still doing good heavens. You know, I discovered something that's a bit of interesting news this week. You did? R related to Quayowar, you remember the dwarf planet we were talking about? Quayowar, yes. They discovered recently it has a second ring. Ooh. It now has two rings. Wow. <laughs> they discovered a second ring inside the other one. Dwarf planets, it seemed to be a, a favorite. Yeah, that was a fun topic, I thought. Yeah, that was fun. Um, and so hopefully this one will be just as fun. We don't know. We never know. <laughs> <laughs> we have fun talking about them. I don't know if you have fun yes. listening to them as much as we have fun talking about them. That's this life in the cosmos. <laughs> yeah. That's just the way it goes, you know. Uh, some people want to go to the moon. Some people want to go to Mars. I don't want to go to either place. And some people just talk about it. That's right. That's what we that's do. Our, that's what we do. Okay. We are, we are <laughs> armchair non-specialist scientists. That's right. Talking uh, about stuff we have no idea what we're talking about. <clears throat> Not really. We actually... Do prepare for these things. Um, we do try to know something about what we're talking we about. We do. We do. <laughs> so uh, so let's get in there, and uh, we're going to give this one a whirl because the stuff we're talking about tonight is kind of whirly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, galaxies. We, we did some programs on galaxies. It was a long time ago now. Right. Kind of... Uh, it was 20, 2019, I looked up, at least when they were on Podbean. Okay, so uh, so we're revisiting the topics, which we like to do, because uh, uh, it's it's good. It reintroduces uh, our faithful listeners to this, and we're refreshing our insights and knowledge about galaxies. And um, one of these days, we're going to go back to the old school, and we're going to do a live coffee shop. One of these days, Wayne, we're going to do that. Um, but for now... We're going to talk about uh, basic basics, galaxy basics, because we have an episode planned where we're going to be talking about um, 
new galaxies. Well, they're not new. They're new to us, but uh, they've been there forever. Uh, new galaxies discovered by the James Webb Space Telescope in places they should not be. Wayne, did you know that when you put a telescope like the James Webb up in the sky, you're going to find things where you don't want to find them? It's like, I didn't put my car keys there. How did my car keys get here? It's kind of one of those <laughs> things. So we're going to talk about galaxy basics tonight. So that our next episode, you guys can uh, we can uh, talk a little bit more about the the amazing discoveries that the James Webb is making right now. How about uh, if we start with a scripture real quick? That is always a good idea. So uh, we have probably read this before, but it's I would like to read from Isaiah forty five verse twelve. Uh, and this is God speaking. He says, It is I who made the earth and created mankind upon it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. That's good. And I have a follow-up one from Isaiah. And uh, it, it's, uh, if you have your Bibles, you can flip back to Isaiah 40. Um, one of the, my favorite verses about the heavens is Isaiah forty twenty six. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. And the reason I like it is because the next verse, because he directly correlates if, if he can keep track and name and number all the stars, then he asks Jacob, or Israel, and uh, why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and, my, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God. So God is saying, look, I, I name and number all the stars, not one of them is missing, so why are you saying to me that, uh, why, why do you wonder? Why do you say that I don't see where you are? So it's very encouraging, I think, that uh, we, we tend to think that our names in, in the big crowd of people that are on the planet and all the billions of people on the planet, that we don't mean much. Nobody knows my name. Uh, our, our two listeners know who we are, but that's about it. Um, you know, maybe we're known to family and friends and things of this nature, but uh, God uses the stars to tell us, look, I know the stars. I know all their names. I know all their numbers. I know how many there are. I'm the only one who does. And uh, so don't tell me that my your way is hidden from me. I can see you, right? So very encouraging. So uh, keep that in mind, though, that as we're talking about this, Wayne, that God numbers and names all the stars, and galaxies are just swirly. A lot of them are swirly. The ones we like to look at are swirly. Swirly islands of bajillions. I'm just going to make up a number because nobody knows how many stars there are in a galaxy. <laughs> Billions, trillions, kajillions, you make up a number with illions on the end of it, and you probably won't even come close to to what how many stars there are. But these are island universes. The 18th century philosopher Immanuel Kant thought, well, that's what he called them, island universes. And Wayne, guess who was the first to put galaxies on the astronomical map? I think you know. We've talked about them a little bit. Do you know? Uh... Who's the first one to see see these things through a telescope? I mean, he didn't understand them like we do today, but he was the first one to really take note of. Was it uh, was it Harlow Shapley? 
No, it actually goes before Harlow Shapley by about a hundred years or so. It uh. was, uh, um, well, even more than a hundred years actually. It was William and Caroline Herschel. Ah. Uh. Late 18th century, early 19th century. Uh, they were the royal astronomers for King George III. And uh, the Herschel's, uh, William was a composer of music. He composed ballroom dancing at the English resort town of Bath. But Herschel was the first to see these fuzzy. Now, in his telescope, he had a big one, but he, they still looked fuzzy. He could see these things. And they just looked like little luminous clouds. Uh, yeah, they had no idea what it was, really. Right. And then there was Charles Messier, of course, who was looking for comets, and he saw these things, too. And he says, no, this is not a comet. Don't look at that one. It is not a comet. So he made these lists of things that were just fuzzy objects in his telescope. Right. Not to look at these things because they're not comets. But the uh, Messier list, which I think goes up to 101, and there's been since many added. But Messier 101 is a beautiful uh, pinwheel galaxy i think is what they call it beautiful spiral patterns but messier thought these were just clouds and it wasn't until and you mentioned him just a minute ago harlow shapley who was an astronomer early 19th early 20th century a contemporary of edwin hubble who liked to box smoked pipe and for the latter half of his life adapted a fake english accent that's the story i've heard and uh, it was a debate between Hubble and Shapley about whether or not these nebulae, as they were known to the to those two guys in the 1920s, these nebulae, clouds, were actually galaxies or were they clouds within our own Milky Way galaxy? Now, we have the Hubble Space Telescope. Who do you think won that debate? We don't have the Shapley Space Telescope because Ed Hubble discovered that those nebulae are galaxies just like our own. So just 100 years ago, Wayne, literally 100 years ago, 1923, we've only known about these galaxies and the size that they are uh, of the universe too since 1923. Uh, Edwin Hubble was looking through a 100-inch Hooker telescope on Mount Wilson in California, found a variable star in the Andromeda galaxy, which enabled him to measure distances uh, to some degree, he wrote Shapley a letter. He said, Shapley, I can just hear his fake British accent, right? Hey, Shapley, uh, I have, you'll be pleased to note that I found a variable star in Andromeda the other night. And so uh, it is reported that Shapley said, here is the letter that destroyed my universe. <laughs> <laughs> so all that's a little bit of a backstory of, of, of these galaxies. For a long time, they thought they were just clouds in the universe. Uh, but now we know that they are massive islands of hundreds of millions, if not trillions of stars, some in swirly shapes. Edwin Hubble actually classified some shapes. There was ellipticals and spirals and uh, lenticulars and uh, all kinds of shapes. And then there was um, the Halton Arp cataloged a bunch of misshapen galaxies, irregular galaxies, as Hubble called them. But the ones we like to look at are the swirly galaxies so let's talk wayne let's talk about what the what these are yeah and then our galaxy is what's uh called a barred spiral galaxy mm -hmm. where it has a, a light a straight light bar that kind of across the middle and then the spiral arms come come off of the end of the bar yes looks like a uh a uh 
handlebar mustache, kind of, you know, with one 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 end of the mustache going down and one end going up toward the eye, like he was in a windstorm. But uh, <laughs> I don't know why that image came to mind. Handlebar mustaches? Who has those anymore? I don't know. Maybe some people do. But, but I bet you know it's interesting too because I take it for granted that everybody knows this, but maybe not. We have never seen the outside of our galaxy. We've only seen the Milky Way from the inside, obviously, because we're in it. But we don't have, it would take several lifetimes and a lot of amazing technology we haven't even imagined yet. Because it, it, we just, uh, what, the Voyager probes uh, that left here in the 1970s are just now getting to the edge and just have passed outside the edge of the solar system. And that's been, you know, 50 some odd years or whatever. Um, yeah. But it would take lifetimes and lifetimes and lifetimes for a space probe to get outside the galaxy and to take a picture of it. And by that time, it's so far away that we probably conceivably could not get a signal. So we haven't developed the technology to get outside of our galaxy and take a picture of it. We've only studied or known its structure from the inside. Yes. Right. We are limited in our perspective, aren't we? But God, in who is rich in mercy, has given us an abundant picture and portrait of all the under all the other wonderful galactic shapes that are out there and here's an important thing Wayne I, I did an article just reflecting on what we were going to talk about tonight and I'll put the link to the article in our notes here but I thought you know how often we are conditioned to think of things in the universe and we've talked about this before but that we call things like what's a galaxy well I just said it's made up of stars it's a swirly island of stars that's what it's made of, right? And how how do we get we get so used to calling things by what they're made of? And I think with galaxies, obviously, and with stars themselves, that they are much more, Wayne, than just gas and dust, right? That they aren't just what they're made of, but but what are they? In, in terms of what the Bible says, they are God's handiwork, His creation yes. that d- declare His glory. So, yes, they're made of carbon and plasma and gas and dust and all that stuff, all that wonderful things that science has uncovered. But it's much more than just the material stuff. These are massive declarations of the glory of God. These declare the glory of God in a silent speech to us. Absolutely. You know, most of us, Wayne, probably have never seen a galaxy with the unaided eye. And I mean... Through a telescope, through it in, in a backyard, somebody's backyard, through a telescope. Very few of us have seen a galaxy in in nature, if you will, looking by looking through a telescope. We've only seen these beautiful Hubble pictures, and uh, you and I have looked through my telescope and seen galaxies before, though. Yeah, I think you you can see Andromeda with a small telescope, right? And if you're in a dark enough sky, you can see Andromeda with a naked eye. Uh, yeah, I think I may have done that. But, yeah. But it's pretty hard to get in a good dark sky, uh, right. clear conditions to do that. Right. You need clear conditions, an excellent dark sky. And um, it's weird when you when you, when you you look at it directly, you can't see it. But if you have peripheral vision in a beautiful, perfectly pristine weather, great dark skies, you can see it looks like luminous dryer lint, even in the telescope. <laughs> yeah. But, but you can see this kind of streak of fuzz. Just out the corner of your eye, once your eye adjusts to the dark, you can see Andromeda. It looks like a tiny little comet 
uh, in the night sky. You don't need a telescope to see it. it but again, you're not going to see this in Dallas and Fort Worth. You're not going to see this in San Francisco or Los Angeles. you got to get away, get out in the desert, get out in the ocean, get out in the Gulf. Um, Texas, thankfully, still has some of the darkest skies in the United States. But uh, yes, you can see Andromeda with the naked eye if you're in the right conditions. Yeah. So, Wayne Spencer, what is a galaxy? What's a galaxy? Let's talk about this. Uh, back when we did the Galaxies Part 1 before, that was uh, back in August of 2019. And um, I'd encourage listeners, if you haven't heard that one, to go back. And we talked a lot about what galaxies were and different kinds of galaxies. We, we talked quite a bit about dark matter and what that is. But... Um, I, w- I did an article on my blog back then, August 2019, and so there was an interesting quote by a physicist named James Treffel that I would like to read a part of it again here, Dan. This is an interesting thing about galaxies. So this is a quote from 1988. It says, he said, it has always been difficult for astronomers to explain why stars are clumped into galaxies instead of being spread out more uniformly in space. There shouldn't be galaxies out there at all, even if there are galaxies. And even if there are galaxies, they shouldn't be grouped together the way they are. So uh, that was the thinking for a long time that scientists were really puzzled over uh, why are there galaxies and how do they form? And there's been a lot of debates about how they form, a lot of different theories uh, over the years. And the, the mysteries of how they form uh, is not a new puzzle, Dan. It's something that's been around for a long time uh, that scientists still puzzle over. Uh, Dan, you remember when we did a program on star formation? Yes. There was a an old old book I took off the shelf from an astronomer named Martin Harwit. Yes, I you love remember that, quote. that. I love that. So quote. his book was called Astrophysical Concepts. He was a uh, professor from Cornell University, and this was a very well known book. And I like this book. So we had a neat quote in there about. <laughs> <laughs> where he said, maybe stars form from nothing at all. That was great. He said well, this. This was really surprising in, the, in his astronomer's book. Well, Dan, I decided to pull out the book again uh-huh. and see what Har- what uh, Martin Harwitz says about the formation of galaxies. I need to get a copy of this book. If you could find one, you'd be doing well. But... This is an old book. It's 1973. So, Dan, this <laughs> this book is 50 years old. Oh, my so, goodness. So, in honor of Martin Harwit, we're going to read from his book again here. <laughs> Let me read a little bit here from, from this book. All right. Now, Wayne, let's, this, we got to say, though, that this is not uh, conspiracy theory weirdness. This is This was solid science. In the seventies, right? This guy was—he uh, was not fringe. This was good. This was science, right? I mean, oh yes, know. but he was a very well uh, respected this astronomy professor. But um, what he has to say is still very relevant today. It's not like it's what he's saying is old and out of date. It's still 
kind of true. It's okay. All right. It, it, it's really just as true now. Uh, okay. So let me read this. He says, um, let us ask next how galaxy formation might take place. Why are there even difficulties in coming up with explanations for the phenomenon? We know galaxies exist in all parts of the universe. At the largest distances accessible with modern techniques, galaxies can still be found in apparently unchanged form and undiminished numbers. Why are they there? <laughs> Dan, does that sound familiar? It sounds like uh, 2023 to me. <laughs> it sounds like the recent stuff on James Webb's It does, Wayne. It does. It's just like this. It's the same thing now. This yeah. was 50 years ago. What's the Spell his last name for me, so for our listeners, too. I'm, so I can uh, Harwit, H-A-R-W-I-T. That's okay. one T. Martin Harwit. Martin Harwit. The book gotcha. is Astrophysical Concepts. Nice. This is page 44. All right. He's got a <laughs> lot of books. The other quote is 30 pages earlier. Okay. So any more juicy stuff about the galaxies? <laughs> I interrupted here. but uh, Yeah, let me, let me go on a little bit more here. Yeah, fire away. Please continue. So that, that much is just like what they're seeing now again with the James Webb Space Telescope. That's okay, remarkable. So he, he goes on. He says, no sure answer is known to any of these questions. And we should perhaps start by pointing out why. The normal approach of astrophysicists has been to postulate that galaxies are condensations formed out of previously tenuous material. There is a parallel between this line of thinking and the approach taken in theories of star formation. In both, <laughs> in both cases, a compact configuration is to be attained, starting from an initially dispersed gas. In both cases, there are difficulties. <laughs> well, so hooray for Martin Harwood. That is amazing. I just uh, it's funny you mentioned Mr. Harvitt because uh, Wayne, I was going through a couple of books uh, from. Um, uh, earlier uh, or newer books from 2021-2022 and um, I was reading a book by a gentleman named Paul Murden called The Universe A Biography now this was in uh, 2022 so this was out it's been out just about a year and um, I mean it's very good it's 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 the latest um, knowledge that we have of how galaxies uh come about and how the universe came to be. But uh, he describes in detail, uh, well, some de I would call it detail. He describes the best physical theory that we have about how galaxies form. So it was interesting, though, because he goes back to the cosmic microwave background radiation that was discovered in the 60s by uh, two gentlemen working at Bell Labs in New Jersey, uh, Penzias and Wilson. Now, the cosmic microwave background radiation, according to current science, is basically like an envelope of low radiation that surrounds the universe. And we're looking at it from the inside of the universe. So this is what they say is the leftover glow of the fireworks of the Big Bang. That's what they say this is. So in the 90s, George Smoot and a team uh, revealed the data to the public 
uh, of this cosmic microwave background radiation. And so what they looked at in this background radiation, what they were looking for, were what they call seeds. Now, uh, Dr. Murden calls these things blobs. So seeds, blobs, whatever. What they claim exists in the cosmic microwave background radiation are little pockets of gravitational density. Now, don't ask them where it came from. Don't ask them how we got blobs. Um, I'm not saying that they don't have a theory, but the blobs are just there. And they say that it's these pockets of gravitational blobs that are the seedlings of the first galaxies or stars either way. Because he said that without the clumpiness in the cosmic microwave background radiation, we would have no way to explain where galaxies and stars come from. Because you need, if you have a long, slow, gradual, developmental, evolutionary theory of the formation of the universe, um, then you need to begin small. Uh, if this stuff just happened gradually over time, how did they begin? And so they try to describe that these initial pockets of density that they allegedly discovered in the cosmic microwave background radiation are the blobs that around which matter and energy eventually coalesce and create these dense pockets around which the galaxies form and then ultimately around how stars form. But really, as I'm reading this, I'm, I, with all due respect, I mean, he's, he's, he's being very matter-of-fact about this. He's not, you know, this is just what the science is today, um, that there's, there's some general problems with how, I mean, it's, it's kind of a pat story that you're told, that blobs, density, gets pushed together, accretion, more stuff. Um, protons, neutrons, and electrons all form, and then, you know, hydrogen helium stars form, right? These are called population three stars, and we talked about this in our episode on stars. Yeah, population three stars are believed to be the first stars that right. had, no, they had no metals, mm -hmm. and um, they did not have the higher atomic number elements on the periodic table. Correct, and... Our galaxy, just to give you a real quick rundown of a galaxy structure, we'll just kind of take ours, or a typical spiral galaxy, that you have this, a galaxy is in the shape if you want to look at a dinner plate, okay? So you have a, a dinner plate is, is the galaxy. Sometimes we see the dinner plate looking down on it. Sometimes we see the dinner plate looking at it on the edge. Uh, for our intents and purposes here, picture in your mind a dinner plate looking at it on the edge. Now that is the chief interior disk of the galaxy and that's where most of the stars exist now in that disk are what they call population one stars these are younger stars with a higher met uh, a higher i think it's a higher metallicity content uh I, i'm not sure I'm, i don't don't quote me on that but they are younger stars we just use the age here yeah these, more the, more metals more metals okay so so these population ones exist in the plate the disk of the galaxy now the galaxy is surrounded by a gaseous halo that goes around the plate so imagine your dinner plate surrounded by a a, a kind of a, a a halo of haze okay and so in this halo of haze that's surrounding your dinner plate a kind of a globish like halo are globular clusters of stars. So globular clusters are fascinating too because 
in this halo that surrounds the plate or the disk of our galaxy, in this halo of gas, are these globular clusters. And Wayne, a globular cluster is like a beehive of stars. It's not a galaxy, uh, but it's a, it's a collection of hundreds of thousands of stars collected in a kind of a ball. And they exist in this halo like bees in a hive. Now, the, yeah, now they are thought to orbit around the center of the galaxy. Correct, correct. And what's interesting is that in those globular clusters exist what we're told to be older population two stars. So these explode and give birth to population three stars or population one stars, excuse me. Population one are the youngest. Population two are the older. And then population three, in order to get population two stars, you need population three stars to blow up. Because population three stars are only comprised of the early elements of the universe, hydrogen, helium, and some other trace elements because there were no heavy metals, allegedly, in the early universe to produce stars like we know them today. So we have to have this evolutionary process of population three to population two to population one. Wayne, you and I both know that the problem with the population three theory is what? What is the main problem with population three there's stars? No, there's no observational evidence for them. We have no observational evidence for population three stars. Now, Dan, I, one important thing to keep in mind is um, they judge the age of a galaxy mainly by the type of stars that are in it. Right. And uh, so you were talking about globular clusters being population two and galaxy population one more. So they would infer from that that the globular clusters were older. Right, right. And there are other things about this where, you know, they have theories about what's called stellar evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it would be better to call it stellar aging. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it's it's a certain kind of progression of what a star goes through mm-hmm. over the course of its time that it's burning hydrogen and, and what, what changes it goes through. Right. Um, but let's go back. I want to kind of relate this to what the, why the whole James Webb, Space Telescope results are so surprising. But to get the idea of why this is, you got to start with the Big Bang to understand how they look at this. Mm-hmm. I don't believe the Big Bang, but it's not that I'm unfamiliar with it. No, so look, okay, with the Big Bang, it starts with a, uh, a hot expansion, rapid expansion of of a material in the universe, a lot of energy. And at first, it's so hot, it's a lot of energy and subatomic particles, and it's so hot that atoms cannot exist. Mm-hmm. For for something about like 300 uh, or 400,000 years, or they estimate, so there's a long time that it's too hot for atoms to hold together. Mm-hmm. When atoms start to hold together and form, then there could start to be light. But there's nothing formed yet to give off light. Mm-hmm. Light mostly comes from matter. It comes, or or from stars, you know. So stars have the nuclear reaction fusing together hydrogen 
or helium, and that gives us light. But you have to have stars and matter before you can have light in the universe. And so this is why they say that the beginning of the universe, there was a period that's kind of the dark ages is what they call it. And why is there a dark age? Because there was no stars and there was nothing to give off light. Mm-hmm. Because all you had was the subatomic particles and you had the energy of everything expanding, but you didn't have anything to generate light. So somewhere along the line, they have, you know, the first stars, now they, how the first stars formed is a mystery. They don't really have a theory for that much. Right. But um, let's say that, let's skip the part of how those first stars formed. <laughs> and let's say, okay, so let's just say they were there. The population of three stars were there. Now, they they tend to believe they were really big stars, mm-hmm. and they go through their life in a, in a kind of short way. They burn up all their hydrogen fuel very rapidly, and then they blow up. Now, where does dust come from, Dan? Where does dust or dirt come from? Where, where, like does, where does dust come from? Um, me not uh, vacuuming. <laughs> before that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Way before that. Um, there can, see, there can't be dust in the universe. There can't until, be without atoms. Until after stars blow up. Correct. Dust has some of the higher atomic number elements in it. Yes. It can have metals. It, it can have things like carbon or... Um, whole variety of things that could be in dust. Now, we're and, talking about metals just, just for our audience and for my own refresher. We're talking about anything on the periodic table of the elements that is heavier than hydrogen or helium, right? Well, no, but the... Uh, well, iron's an obvious example. Tin, yes. uh, aluminum, those are metals, right? But there's a lot of other elements that connect like metals. I heard and, that there was uh, metals are could be... Um, could be anything. So metals is is that titanium, copper, aluminum, tin. But could it? I thought metals meant something more than just what we consider to be metallic. It was just uh, in terms of the 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 the, the uh, atomic weight of an element. I must be wrong. I guess. I'm wrong well, it, basically, it's the ones on the periodic table that ha- end in IUM in the name. Okay. Okay. Well. <laughs> That's and it kind of oversimplifies it, but that's probably a simple answer. So iron doesn't end in IUM. I'll just throw that curveball in there. Uh, well, there's exceptions <laughs> on the name. Well, anyway, <laughs> there's even but, there's also weird exceptions that can act both as a metal and a non-metal. There's absolutely things that are kind of absolutely. Kind of both. But we're, what we're talking about here, just to refresh, uh, sorry for the digression, but we are talking about. Um, heavy elements, elements heavier than uh, hydrogen and helium. Which uh, is heavier than iron, actually. He- heavier than iron. We're talking about how did these heavier elements come to be? Well, continuing. So these- in stars, they don't believe that any element above iron can form inside a star. Well, the star is kind of running its engine, you might say. Yes, right. But if the star explodes in a supernova... We had another program about supernovas. But uh-huh. anyway, when the star blows up, um, 
that's when it can form some of these other higher atomic number elements and higher atomic number metals and such. Because the energies are so much greater when a star goes kaboom yes. than, than when it's just fecundating in its core. So these are... <laughs> so I swear, go back to the question now of what do the first galaxies form or from? Well, it has to be after the first stars formed and blew up so that you have the material from those st first stars scattered around the universe. You have to have clouds mm. of dust and gas. And where does that come from? It has to come from the early stars. Mm -hmm. But somewhere along the line, and then this is what they think today, and this is, you'll you there are different theories on galaxy formation, but I, as far as I can tell, I think this is a general idea. They believe that stars tend to form in clusters or small groups, at least, and uh, where where the material you have a cloud that's especially dense, a star stars may form kind of in a group, and then so you may have imagine a massive massive cloud that's it's over a huge amount of space and in one part of it there's a little clump of stars that form and in another part over here somewhere else there's another clump of stars that form and then another one another clump somewhere else and another clump so these little clumps of stars form and then they slowly attract each other they pull each other together by gravity so you the the clumps get bigger and then once they come together, they tend to start spinning, and then it, you it can spin into a disk, and you can end up eventually with a galaxy. That's fascinating, Wayne, because I was just reading this morning that uh, we mentioned earlier globular clusters, which are like uh, cotton balls of stars. Um, my favorite one to see in the telescope is uh, the great globular cluster in the constellation of Hercules, M13. My gosh, that's a beautiful thing. And then Omega Centauri is the biggest globular cluster that we know of in our in our Milky Way. And you can see that just on the horizon here in Texas in the summertime through a telescope if you know where to look. But so you have globular clusters where you have these beehive uh, groups of stars like cotton balls uh, that exist in orbit around the disk of our galaxy in the halo of our galaxy. That's one kind of cluster. But if you come into the disk of the galaxy... And you look at star clusters. There are these things called open star clusters. Now, here's the $25,000 question, Wayne. These open star clusters, I love. The, they are so much fun to look at in a telescope. They look like jewels. They look like necklaces that have been laid on velvet. There's just these beautiful strings of stars everywhere that you look. And these are called open clusters. And the... I mean, for me, I'm sure there's an answer for it. But for me, if these stars, you know, what's the gravitational difference between an open cluster of strings of stars, right? Why didn't these strings or filaments of stars become cotton balls of stars? What what prevents these strings from coming together in a in a in a ball? And what why does the ball not become a string of stars? And um, we just had Dr. Luke Barnes on our Atheist and Christian Book Club at Watchmen this past month, just a few mm. days. It's, it's up on YouTube. And uh, Dr. Barnes, and I wish I had time, and maybe our, in our part two we'll, we'll go into this perhaps. 
Dr. Barnes has a friend, a colleague who's a cosmologist, Geraint Lewis, who uh, is working right now on uh, smaller galaxies that rotate around bigger galaxies. And I think, and it was just in passing, and I hadn't had the time to really look at it, but one of the things Garrett studies is globular clusters um, and how the bigger galaxies are consuming the orbiting other galaxies or, or globular clusters. So there's what, what's left behind, and the fascinating thing is, Wayne, is that there are these long ribbon-like trails of stars in and around the halos of galaxies. And Garrett thinks, um, from what Luke said, that these are potentially globular clusters that have been torn apart by galactic interaction. But the bottom line is, so I was just talking to you. Yeah, Dan, I think those are called star streams. Star streams. Thank you. I knew you I knew you There really is the name for this. That they're they're fascinating. And I looked up at a couple of pictures. Um Star streams, and and so Garant seems to think. Garant th- seems to think, and I don't know. I have to read the research, so I don't mean to misquote or to to, to misjudge what his research is. But um, but what what causes these star streams? And Garant thinks it's it might be, um, for lack of a better word, cannibalism. Uh, a bigger galaxy, you know, interacting with or colliding with smaller galaxies, or um, these uh, the bigger galaxies consuming the globular clusters that get maybe ripped apart and in orbit but but um it, it doesn't it's there's not conclusive research they did i saw one paper that uh, tried to track um, um eight globular clusters and and tra- created a, a theoretical trail of how the the star streams might have been created by these globular clusters but they're not entirely sure that that's how they came to be but there's hmm. another mystery so you have yeah open clusters you have globular clusters and you have star streams surrounding the the galaxy and and so add all that artistry on top of the mysteries of how all this began and and it just starts to blow the mind just 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 boggles the mind yeah so let's think about um the time frame of what i was describing a minute ago so yes okay if you go go back and think about starting from the big bang there was a, a sometime after that there was this dark period that's referred to often as the dark ages how long was that well i think they take it up to about five or six hundred million years after the beginning after the big bang so there was a few hundred million years of this dark age and that would be before the stars started to form then the first stars, the population of three stars, would go through their lifetime and then blow up and they would scatter the gas and dust around the universe. Um, now, the Big Bang is all about how the universe starts and expands. And what the Big Bang gives you when it's really over is just expanded gas. But... Then you have to have you have to have gravity pulling things together. When it comes to things at the scale of a galaxy, the only tool in the toolbox, Dan, is gravity. Uh, gravity and so you have well you have gravity and gas 
And but in terms of like pulling things together, gravity and gas don't exactly. Gravity's well. We were going to call our podcast all that gas, right? But we were like, no, we don't even do it. But, <laughs> yeah, I didn't like that. But anyway, uh, so anyway. the so the universe starts as all that gas, and <laughs> and then and then it starts to compress. They think and it clumps and this together. goes back. This goes back to the blobs or the seeds in the cosmic microwave background radiation. Yeah. So as it expanded, the energy of the heat cools down, and when it cools down. It's it's becomes a little uneven, and those, but that unevenness is because of what's going on at with at the level of subatomic particles mm-hmm. and radiation. Now, how does that relate to uh, uh, macroscopic objects and things like dust clouds? Well, that's not really very clear, but they they have this idea that the the clumping of the radiation would somehow be related to clumps of matter as and that would start the uh condensation or the coming together of this material mm. over th- over time well you make a good point wayne because i've never thought about this okay so uh you you have clumps in the cosmic microwave background radiation but that's low level radiation like, what exactly is this clump comprised of? And as as far as I follow Dr. Uh, uh, Murden, that the clump seems to be, he seems to suggest that the clump is made up in part uh, of dark matter, that dark matter has some kind of role to play in all this. It's almost like a placeholder where we're not entirely sure, but uh, what we know about dark matter, maybe we can posit dark matter because it doesn't interact with radiation. Yes. So we can't see it, but yeah. it's there doing things. Dark matter and gravity. So it's almost like, well, gravity alone we know can't do it, but if we throw dark matter in there, well, now we've got some charcoal. <laughs> yeah, fires. it's dark matter is the unseen partner in the deal. Yeah, it's literally <laughs> like charcoal. It's dark and it's stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and it starts fire and you squeeze charcoal together to make charcoal. It's uh, But but that's kind of what it is. And I mean, we're being a little cheeky here, but but because they know... Gravity by itself can't start this process. That that this placeholder dark matter is awfully convenient. Now, to be fair, uh, it was Vera Rubin in the 1960s. She since passed away, but she did a she did her work on galaxies, and she, I think it was Fritz Wicke before her too. That this this idea that there was stuff there we couldn't see because the galaxies seemed to be rotating at an incredible rate of well at, rotating at a speed that should be throwing stars off into the universe but that wasn't happening so they posited this invisible glue that was holding galaxies together because at their rotational velocity they should be throwing stars hither and yon as fast as they're as fast as they're spinning and uh and but they're not so there must be something else there yeah so, so there, there's some um what seems like really pretty good arguments for dark matter, yeah. but yet it can't be directly detected. No so, direct so detection. When, when when the universe expands from the Big Bang, most of what you have is hydrogen gas when it's over, but they believe that dark matter was in the involved in this in some way. So they believe that dark matter helped with matter coming together and clumping together, but what I wanted to get to is how long does all of this take? So this dark age period is thought to be 
several hundred million years, and then the first stars form, and their lifetime is something like 10 billion years or less, probably a few billion years at least, because they burn up their fuel, their large stars, and then you don't get more stars forming until after those are over with. So how are you? I was talking about these clumps of stars that become a galaxy. Well, before you can get those clumps like that, you first have to have the first stars have already blown up. And and then you have to have this gas and dust that's created from the first surround of stars that has to form into the others. So it takes uh, something like a billion years or more in their time scale, in their concept, for these first clusters of stars to form into a galaxy. So they expected with the James Webb Space Telescope that when you could look back as far and as, as, as sensitively as it does with infrared, that you should be able to see some of these small clumps of stars, Dan, that I was describing, that you can see some of these clumps of stars that are not very big. They're just like a baby galaxy. Sometimes they actually describe them as a baby galaxy. They may also call them a seed because they think that it's the initial clump, if you will. It has stars in it, but it's the initial clump that other matter can... um, condense onto, and then you get more and more stars, more and more, more and more in the galaxy. So it's a matter of, it's interesting too, because there's two things here that are beyond the scope of our observation. And, and this is not per se a, a, a pejorative criticism of this, but it is just to point out two things, Wayne. Time, an inexplicable amount of time, what some people might call deep time, but there's no human being that can conceive of just how vast, I mean, we're throwing billions of years out there, hundreds of thousands of years, just this inconceivably vast time that you cannot bring into the lab, right? So they, there's time that, that mm-hmm. can't be tested. And then the other aspect of, of this is... Uh, no popul- no observational evidence for population three stars, which they need to go supernova in order to have population two stars or any kind of stars with metallicity. And then dark matter. While there is good secondary, uh, what we might say, uh, evidence or arguments for dark matter, it's a third entity that you can't see. So you have deep time and population three stars and dark matter all of which are beyond the realm of empirical science to to verify, um, and to to so so, it really is very difficult to wrap your head around um, what what is today known as theoretical cosmology because everything that you described, Wayne, accurately the model of the Big Bang is theoretical cosmology, a, a, mm-hmm. a science of even more particular cosmogony. Is the the, co- the the science of the origins of the universe. Nobody can bring the origin of the universe back into a laboratory. Uh, what Luke Barnes and Geraint Lewis and other cosmologists do is they create computer models based on the mathematics of how they think 
things should come about. But in terms of observational astronomy, it's very it's a very different science. So observational astronomy, they look at the existing entities. They look at the structures through the telescope and take pictures of it. Edwin Hubble was an observational astronomer. And he measured distances and took pictures and all this stuff. But but today, in just the last hundred years, this field of of non-observational theoretical cosmology is mostly mathematics and probability theory. And uh, yes, and it always has to be tested against observations, right? And what so what's happened over the years, Dan, in the intervening fifty years since Martin Arwit is. <laughs> We've gotten better and better <laughs> telescopes, right? Right. Well, the right. Hubble Space Telescope, Martin Harwitt, uh I don't remember when the Hubble Space Telescope was put up in space. Do you? That was been a long time 1990. ago. 1990. 1990. Okay. So we get better pictures. We see farther and farther out. We can see fainter and fainter things, better and better. And now the James Webb Space Telescope, it uses infrared, but it can see very very sensitively detect objects, very faint things out there. Mm-hmm. And um, what does it show? It shows that when they could see back, they thought that they could look back into the edge of this dark age period. Yeah. And they expected to see some of these small clusters of stars that are like baby galaxies. Right. But they don't see baby galaxies; they see big galaxies, full, big galaxies. fully mature galaxies that have the normal shape of any galaxy would today. They don't look like they're different because they're way out there. They look the same. So as far as you look in the universe, the galaxies seem the same. This, to me, goes fits beautifully with the creation concept, which is the concept of um god creating things mature and fully fully formed mm-hmm. from the start that's fully formed from the start that's the kind of picture that, that i see in the bible and i don't i don't think that's a that's not an irrational thing because it fits observations and it avoids a lot of the problems in trying to explain how it could all form by natural processes you could actually predict from the genesis text we were talking about this last year i don't know if we said it in a program or we were just talking in general but um when when we were talking about what the james webb was going to find um i think it was you and i were both like well they're going to find stuff (laughs) where it shouldn't be right they're going to they're going to see things we we're not scientists but we predicted um, that they were going to find this kind of stuff, that, that things that were going to defy the long, slow, gradual Big Bang steady state, uh, not steady state, but long, slow, gradual uh, Big Bang cosmology, that they're going to find objects uh, that are going to defy the current observational timescales that they have in place. And I think, and I was talking to, to James, our boss at Watchman, about this. He's like, what do you think of this? And uh, he came up with a pretty savvy idea that cosmologists – are now faced with, and astronomers are now faced with something like the Cambrian explosion in evolution. The the, the idea yeah. that these fossils just came out of nowhere, fully formed, trilobites, everything else that you can think of, eyes, antenna, shells, exoskeletons, 
bang. All at once. All at once. And so you have a couple of uh, biologists duking it out, Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins, um, about this. And that, Dan, that's why the, the Cambrian explosion in the fossil record in geology has been called the biological Big Bang. Well, this is but what it is. Here we go. That's the connection. <laughs> here we go. <goes. laughs> that's it. Be careful what you ask for. Um, <laughs> but James said something that he he related the 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 uh, new James Webb findings in these fully these beautiful galactic fossils we'll call them because they're very old right they're out there where they shouldn't be uh, to what Stephen Jay Gould postulated about the Cambrian explosion what what he called punctuated equilibrium in other words somehow beyond our ability to explain the mechanism things just seem to gradually get on the fast track it's like the people mover at, uh, at at Love Airport that I like to get on where you don't have to walk. You could just get on it and move really quickly and it'll take you to the gate or you can walk and you're walking 10 times faster. Um, th- this is like a people mover of evolution that, 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 that these things, maybe they didn't take so much time. Maybe they took uh, a lot quicker time than, than our current time scale. So I think what you're going to see in the next year or more or maybe quicker than that, I think, is that you're going to see some kind of allowance for in the terms of the fields of galaxy formations, where we might start seeing explanations that say, you know, if the quanta, if the universe popped into existence, let's say, whatever the Big Bang singularity was, whether it's a quantum fluctuation or wherever it came from, then why don't galaxies or stars just pop into existence? If you can theorize that a galaxy fluctuated into a quantum vacuum and just became what it is, this is Sean Carroll's model, which is actually... Um, uh, the uh, many worlds hypothesis of uh, Hugh Everett, um, where the universe is a giant quantum fluctuation, where a, a particle fluctuates and kaboom, here we are. Um, if you're going to postulate that kind of ideology, then it's not much of a step, Wayne, to say that stars just quantumize into existence or galaxies just kind of pop into existence. That may be unpalatable. The other thing I think that is probably more likely, Wayne, is that we might see a um, the the universe uh, acquire a few extra billion years in age right before our eyes. I think in our lifetime they may adjust the age of the universe to much older than what it is. Rather than say these things came in quickly to fit the model as it currently stands, I think they may have to adjust the age of the universe in order to to keep the long, slow, gradual idea in place what do you think well well dan that's an interesting thing to bring up and that actually creates another problem for them because uh of what they call the hubble constant yes the hubble constant is a it's a constant but it's a number that is related to the expansion rate of the universe and so the hubble constant is one over the age of the universe, essentially. So they talk about Hubble time. What's the Hubble time? The age of the universe. It's the age, it's, it's the time the universe has been expanding. Ah, now, so. So if they say, let's say that they wanted to make the universe, uh, say, 20 billion years old instead of about 14, then that would be out of line with what they've measured for the Hubble constant, they measure 
things about redshifts and the expansion of the universe from observations. And then they try to fit that. It's kind of a statistical argument to some degree, but they try to fit that to this Hubble constant. So the Hubble's law and the way they make that constant is supposed to reflect the age of the universe. So if they try to say the universe is older, then their observations don't fit. Ah, and there's also two, and I know this is getting a little aside from our where we're going, but there's also two ways in which they measure um, the expansion rate of the universe, and they don't agree. And I'm not sure. I don't. Yes, there are different ways they do that. I'm not. Um, I don't have enough of my notes in front of me. I didn't uh, yeah, I'm not. I don't have that in front of me either. But but uh, but you're right that it, it, there's a lot of problems if you expand the age of the universe. I, I don't know. Uh, Dr. Barnes is is this is one of his fields of of research. It'll be fun to talk to him in the coming years if uh, I, if I can about how is this going to change our paradigm, the paradigm of science and astronomy and cosmology about how galaxies form. I mean, I think it's only going to deepen the mystery because there's just we're already bereft of the kind of empirical evidence that we would want to to formulate um, once and for all how these things form. And I think we're 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 in an explanatory deficit. The more they uncover, the more we don't know. And I'm not saying that uh, the whole field of cosmology and astronomy they're full of ignorant people that are trying to cover the truth. Uh, no, 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 we're not suggesting that. But it it is Wayne, as you said earlier, it is not irrational to say at, at this point that that look, the further back you look, the more it looks like just the same kind of stuff that we're surrounded by here, closer to home, um, closer to our era. Uh, these galaxies look just like Andromeda. Uh, they don't look like squiggly, messy things because, well, the web has better resolution than Hubble. And so what looked like a squiggly blob of jello is now a nice barred spiral or uh, some, some other kind of galaxy. And um, so the fully formed structures that we're seeing in the deeper part of the universe, they're in epochs of time where there were supposed to be only stars forming. Three, four hundred, uh, you know, whatever the, whatever the era was. But uh, these galaxies that the web is uncovering, and we'll talk about those in another show in more detail. But um, for now, I hope this has given our listeners a taste to, to go and look uh, and explore and see what this is all about. It's just fascinating. We are in an era of exciting discovery. And I think in our lifetimes, Wayne, we will see a significant paradigm shift. As Thomas Kuhn says in uh, Scientific Revolutions, the nature of scientific revolutions where a paradigm shift is coming, where the model gets a big upgrade or a change or a complete re-overhaul, um, that we might be seeing that right now as, as right unfolding before our eyes. Yeah, it's always just interesting to see what direction science goes next after these big discoveries. And uh, But this basic problem of how do we explain these distant galaxies and, and stars that just look the same as any other stars and galaxies. Right. That's been right. a problem since the days of Martin Harwit, and it's still <laughs> a problem. And it's it, the same problem has just continued to show up in, in more different ways. Right, right. Um, so it's kind of uh, history repeating itself. But uh, we don't have all the answers, and I don't claim to uh, have all the answers. But 
I don't think that uh, believing in creation is such a bad idea. I mean, it fits no. better than people think it does. Yeah, I like what, uh, and I'm like you, Wayne. I mean, people know our listeners know um, we we wrote a book together. You you have the physics degree. I just have the color commentating skills and a, and a deep interest and love in the universe. So we're not scientists, so we apologize to any scientists who are listening. We may have gotten the scientific data wrong, but we are trying to um, just lay people talking about uh, the bigger picture. What does this mean? What are these things? What does this mean? How can we as lay people understand it? That's what Good Heavens is all about, bringing, um, getting, uh, getting people interested in these ideas so that they can be more conversant with people who like to talk about them. And uh, I like what God says to Job in Job 38. Uh, Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? I guess. <laughs> or fix their rule over the earth? Can you uh, lead forth a constellation? In their in seasons, season? yes. Can you guide the bear with their satellites? Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are? yes. You know, who can count the clouds by wisdom or tip the water jars of the heavens when the dust hardens into a mass and the clouds stick together? Oh, that's good. I love the dust hardening into a mass and the clods sticking together. Who does that? (laughs) Who does that? You know, I mean, science might find an explanation for how things clump together. That's fine. But ultimately... It's it's like it's 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 like saying, well, I can exp- well, why is this coffee on the table? Well, I can explain how a coffee maker works, and that would explain some degree why the coffee's on the table. But there's another explanation. Who put it there? Uh, yeah, there's the physical cause, and then there's the ultimate cause, and the the purpose behind it. Right, right. And what's interesting too, Wayne, and this is completely outside the realm of of cosmology and astronomy, but if you're if you take a naturalist worldview where there is no god and all of this stuff just comes about naturally then you you can't say at any scale that any of this has any purpose so it only looks purposeful so the sun giving us light the sun fecundating our soils the sun giving us a clock in the sky uh, none of that was on purpose that's all an illusion. It looks like it was designed, but it really it really wasn't. And that you have to take that assumption at every level, all the way down to the biology in our bodies. So if the sun is an accident, the sun just looks like it's keeping time. The sun just so happens to be able to fecundate our oxygen and our soils and everything. Um, but that's not really designed. It just looks that way. Same, I mean, it, it follows then that every star, every moon, every every atom, every proton, neutron, and electron, everything in our bodies, even who we are, Wayne, has no purpose. It looks like it does, but if, you, if you're consistent with naturalism, you cannot say that anything in nature, anything in creation has any purpose or design. And that just betrays common sense. It is cognitive dissonance on the, on the highest level, I think, where... You have to continue to tell yourself this wasn't designed, that's not designed, that wasn't designed, that's not designed, it has no purpose. But the tragedy of that is that it, it ultimately trickles down to who we are in the cosmos. And if all that stuff's not designed, then who are we? Then that's a tragic question. Um, we have no purpose. And so it follows. And I think the best 
The best explanation, of course, is that God has imbued these things with purpose. They declare his glory. Everything that has been made was made through Christ and for Christ. And it's John who says everything that has been made, uh, I forgot how he words it in the Greek grammar, but everything that has been made has been made by him. And it serves a purpose. Jesus used nature to talk about the kingdom of the heavens all the time. Birds. Uh, it was funny. This morning I was reading about the Big Bang in one of my books, and uh, outside my window were a, a male and female cardinal just sitting on the fence singing to each other. It was really it was beautiful. I'm reading about stars, <laughs> listening to bird songs. And it, it's all it's all purposeful. It's all mm-hmm. a reminder of, of who God is. Everything that he has created has his signature on it. Uh, especially the cosmos, I think, because uh, we have specifically in Scripture telling us, David in Psalm 19, that the heavens are telling of the glory of God and the skies proclaim his handiwork. Yes, and it's he's revealing himself through what he's created so that we will reach out and find him. That's right. As the Apostle Paul says right. in Acts 17, he is not far from every one of us. And we can, we can find him. Yeah. So, Wayne, it's been a fantastic episode. I can't wait to, to dive into some of the the web discoveries that we'll be talking about in upcoming episodes. And uh, so I'm uh, headed to California to see my mom for a bit. And uh, we'll be back uh, in May with some more episodes about uh, James Webb discoveries, I think. I think that's what's on tap, right? Is that what we're talking right. about? Well, yeah. There's, <laughs> there's lots of interesting things from James Webb we can talk about. Absolutely, absolutely. More and, and more uh, pictures and amazing things all the time. Yes. So uh, if you've if your interest has been picked by what we've talked about, look up stellar streams or star streams. Um, look up globular clusters. Look up Hercules, the M13. I'll put some links in the notes below that you can check out some of the images, uh, links to pl- things that you can see. Um, beautiful stuff out there. And uh, so uh, keep looking. And uh, – Dan, I want to mention briefly, there is an article on my blog on my website on galaxies that we did and I did in 2019, and we can uh, we can put a link to that. So it's it's kind of uh, part of what we talked about now. And go back to the other, uh, we had two podcasts in August and September of 2019. Um, the people can- you remember that stuff better than I do. It's been six years. I'm starting to lose track. <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't remember it all, but I, I want to tell a secret here. I, I go back and re-listen to our podcast sometimes. Hey, I'm glad you're doing that. <laughs> and uh, that's how I remember. And uh, I really enjoy doing that. I find them I find them very encouraging. Well, it's yeah. fun. I, I go back and listen to them, too. Yeah, I, I I like to. I'm like, my gosh, is that what I sounded like? Um, some of the earlier some of the earlier ones are kind of funny, where I was doing the fake English accent. Good heavens, a podcast about the universe with Wayne and Dad. Um, but uh, we were a little. I was a little silly back then, but we weren't sure quite how long this was going to last. <laughs> we didn't know. Um, but I, I'm enjoying it. I hope our listeners are enjoying it. Thanks for being a supporter. If you are, if not, check out Patreon.com/slash Good Heavens. Or check out uh, Wayne at Podbean, and you can support us both either way. Just a dollar a month if you want to do that. We don't ask for money. We don't need it per se. But if you'd like to support the podcast, it does help, and we appreciate everything that you do um, in that regard. And uh, drop us a line at psalm1968 at gmail.com, psalm1968 at gmail.com. It's uh, our Good Heavens email, and Wayne and I will get back to you. 
Good Heavens is a production of Watchman Fellowship Incorporated, Arlington, Texas. For more information on apologetics, cults, world religions, and our sister podcast, Apologetics Profile, visit watchman.org. For Watchman Fellowship, I'm Anna-Marie Smiths.